ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, cats of all ages, welcome to episode 98 of the Development Hell podcast. Uh, look, we never promised you anything, really. We're just trying to get to 100, and then we're going to see what happens when we uh, get past 100. We did receive a very nice email a couple days ago from a gentleman who said that he was glad that we were um, up and running again, and he also talked about how he had heard me speak on another podcast, so I cheated on Ed by going on another podcast. I spoke to the folks from uh, the PHP Architect podcast, where I got to talk about my favorite subject, which is me, so that was pretty good. Uh, I didn't. This is the first time you told me about that, by the way, so... uh... <laughs> really? Yeah. Didn't I yeah, tell you before? A, yeah, you haven't told me this. Oh, no, wow. no, that's new. Thanks for even mentioning. I might have even listened to it. Well, uh, I, I didn't talk about anything you didn't already know, so it was yeah, probably it was, it was okay. It's it, it's just one of those things. Yep, pretty much. I think oh. I just turned my video on. Yeah, I, I know. Didn't screw up anything? No, no, it's recording, I and mean, I can see you're in a different. Oh, I oh, I know where you are at your house. I can tell. I've, yeah, like in the yes. nook. Yes, I can see uh, that. You don't have yours on, though, so we well, can't. Well, I should probably turn it on so you can see my happy smiley face. Oh, yeah. Hey, look at that, buddy. You got so, some kind of funny funny poster behind you. I do. I have a poster uh, that I got done when uh, Jess, she's, I forget what her last name is, but it's Jessalyn Rose, and she's on Twitter, and I've known her for a very long time, and she started working at Mozilla. She works in developer right. relations, and so she does this podcast called The What's, what's it called again? The Pursuit Podcast. So she had me on to talk about PHP and why you should use it, even though I started off that podcast by saying, well, I really think if people are learning programming these days, they should probably start with JavaScript because it's so, or JavaScript for you Americans, So it's uh, because it's so ubiquitous. Um, but if you are going to go with PHP, I kind of talked about why I felt that PHP um, is and will continue to be a viable choice. Uh, as a server-side programming language for many, many years to come, because it's one of these things that will be that will come a time when there's not that many PHP programmers out there anymore, and there's still lots of PHP code, and you can become a very wealthy consultant by fixing PHP-related problems for people. Oh yeah, there's no doubt about that. So on this uh, scintillating episode, we have uh, three topics that we're going to go over before we close things out. So uh, why don't we get into the first one? I went to Gen Con. Um, a little bit more in a week. Well, yes, I did. I went, I got down there, no problem. But coming back uh, as people who follow me on various social media outlets, uh, know, uh, was fraught with, uh, yet another car breakdown when my vehicle enters the state of Indiana, but I didn't break Mm -hmm. down it. I didn't break down in Indiana. So I guess I can't blame Indiana entirely, but for those who are not familiar with Gen Con, I'm sure there are some who are not, uh, Gen Con is an annual, um, gaming convention that happens uh, these days in Indianapolis, Indiana. Um, it is humongous. There were 70,000 people there this year. So the dealer hall where you can go and um, buy buy board games and accessories and stuff was just packed. And I was commenting to my wife that um, I don't normally pay attention to my steps or like distance traveled like via the health app on my watch. But I think the health app got confused because I wasn't able to walk with my normal stride in the dealer hall, um, mm. despite being a very large human and usually intimidating people to get out of my way. So I had to kind of shuffle around most of the time when I was taking steps. So the step app got completely confused and said I had done like half the steps that I had done the day before when I actually did way less walking. So, um, mm-hmm. That was interesting. I, I think the, the thing that I find most interesting about Gen Con is that it's kind of proof that there's been a renaissance for um, board games, that um, 
people have swung, the pendulum has swung from uh, people spending all their time gaming on console games or computer and swung back to people actually getting together um, in meat space to play. And I think uh, I, my own personal theory on this is that with the video game industry concentrating for the most part, like 99% of the games out there are like violent first person shooter games. So all, or sports games, those are kind of the two big things these days. So I think, I think everybody who does not want to participate in a game where your reflexes matter have migrated back, have migrated back to playing board games. And there are so many good board games. And, um, the funny thing was I saw two different booths there of companies that uh, sell the parts for board games. So you would go to them if you had a game you're trying to produce and they would make all the pieces and boards and cards and stuff for you. So I thought the analogy of those are the people selling the pickaxes and shovels during the gold rush. So, yeah. Have you ever been to Gen Con, Ed? No, my kid, my kid has been, um, I, uh, I, I don't actually really like board games. And plus, I think you would be 100% triggered by too many people there because that was even, for, even yeah, even for me who doesn't mind big crowds, um, I found it overwhelming at times. Yeah, it's a lot of people. I could probably go for like a day and be okay and power through it. Um, but it's a little like South by Southwest kind of. It's mm-hmm. just it's just like I don't I don't know. I in the, in the sense of number of people, I think South by Southwest is more douchey. The interactive part, uh, Gen Con seems like it might be fun, but I I, I don't know. I there's a lot of conferences in indie. Like there was Days of the Dead was a recent horror conference that mm-hmm. happened. Um, Things like that. So they uh, they do a lot of stuff down there. So I don't know. I might go with something else. But Gen Con is like, there's there's probably a lot of cool stuff. It's just it's kind of not my thing because I'm not much of a tabletop gamer. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, so I did go with a friend of mine who is a veteran of having gone to many, many Gen Cons. So it was kind of good to get um, his perspective. He signed up for a lot of events to go to, d- demos of new games and play games he was familiar with. And then I spent most of my time uh, hanging out with uh, a bunch of people that I know from uh, online who are into magic. So I played a lot of magic when I was there. So it was kind of good. And good to see some people I had not seen in person um, for many, many years. And then... Right. Uh, and then one of the guys who I play with organized a really nice dinner um, at, uh, uh, I hope I don't get it wrong, Harry and Izzy's, which is right next, the one that's right next to St. Elmo's in downtown um, Indianapolis, uh, Steakhouse. I think it's Harry and Izzy's. Um, so I went there and had oh, a really- Oh, yeah, Harry and Izzy's, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I went there and had a very expensive but very good um, dinner. I got uh, this really great- um, Grilled slab bacon that had a, a maple um, syrup sauce on it. Uh, I had a a nice aged prime rib with mashed potatoes and skillet uh, mushrooms on the side, along with some fried green tomatoes. And then I ate two thirds of the biggest um, bread pudding dessert I'd ever seen in my life. It was clearly, uh, something that the, the, a lot of the, I mean, I don't know how many of our listeners have ever been to like a high end steakhouse, but basically all your sides and your desserts are like for, and even some of the mains almost feel like they're for two people. So, yeah, um, yeah, they really are. Like it's a place where you, you spend like, you can spend 50, 60, $70 on a steak. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But then it's like the side, 
the aside is like for three people and then like the desserts are like for two, three people. So it's all super good. Yeah. Right. But yeah, it's, it's super pricey too. Yeah, so I, mean, Gibson, I mean, we yeah, went to Gibson's once in Chicago for right. after like PHP Tech. I think. Yeah, I've like been that. to like I've a, been to Gibson's as well, but I didn't go. I went when I was at Tech, but I did not go with uh, people from Tech. I went with a, a good friend of mine that lives in Chicago, and I remember uh, looking at the menu and I was like, "Wow, that's a seventy dollar U.S. steak!" And how they brought right. out this, and how they brought out all the steaks on like a big. Uh, platter and you could literally pick the one you'd say, I want this thing. And they would bring a couple and say, is this one good? And you would actually pick it. So uh, my bill included with booze and everything was like about a hundred and with, with uh, taxes and tip, I think it was like 170 bucks. So yeah, that um, sounds about right. Yeah. Which is about $3,000 Canadian. So, um, uh, but uh, yep. it is worth it. It was, I would say not the, not the best meal I've ever had, but definitely like top five for meals I've had. The the best meal I've ever had is um, was a omakase sushi dinner that I had in Buffalo one time. That was hands down the best meal um, I've ever had. Nothing has come close to it yet. So, but you really? know, yeah. Um, I know you're not a big sushi eater, right, Ed? If I remember. No, I love sushi. Oh, do you? Yeah, I love sushi. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I mean, if uh, uh, next time uh, we are physically present in the same place, if we can find a sushi place that will do the omakase. And again, I keep talking about stuff. For listeners who don't know, what omakase means is basically the chef chooses. You just say, I'm willing to spend X amount of dollars on it sushi. Means, uh, you yeah. will take what I give you, white man. Yeah, basically. Yes. Uh, yeah. So the chef will just do whatever they want. So the place that I went to was a sushi place that I've been to a bunch of times back when I used to work for Cinecore, which is a company that was in Buffalo, New York. And um, there was this great sushi restaurant out in the suburbs um, in a little strip mall. You would never even know it's there. And uh, they uh, people that work there go there all the time. And so I, and so when they heard we were coming, there's a big group of us. Um, the head chef, it was his day off. And when he heard we was coming, he wanted to come back and do a bunch of stuff for us. So we had... Uh, Everybody got basically individualized plates. Everybody had something different. The desserts were all the same, but everybody um, got their own uh, unique um, servings of sushi and, and rolls and everything. It was just excellent. I've never had a meal as good as that ever. So, so I do like my sushi. But anyway, so really, everything um, to you in life is a disappointment now. After that, well, no, I mean, there's lots of other things that I, I can take um, uh, great pleasure in food wise. But that, like I said, that one is the best meal I've ever had. I'm sure. One day I will eat somewhere that tops that probably like some super exclusive uh, um, restaurant. Uh, like I know there's a, like a super exclusive sushi restaurant in New York where you need to get a reservation like a year in advance. And it's like 250 or $300 US a person. I'm pretty sure that would probably uh, challenge the omakase stuff that I had. I mean, um, I didn't even eat sushi until about... 13, 14 years ago, if I remember correctly, had never had it, tried it with a coworker. And I was like, Oh, I, I kind of like this. So, um, yeah. so were you afraid of it? Uh, yes. sort of. Um, yes, that's a, that's a, that's a, yeah, that's a, yes. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't afraid so much of the fish. I was more afraid of like, what's the seaweed like? And, and how's that going to taste? And the, the, other weird stuff like fish eggs and things like that. Fish was okay. Um, but once I had other sushi, like I went with a guy and um, we had like grilled eel and fish eggs and uh, all sorts of other stuff, uh, bacon wrapped asparagus that they did up for us and things like that. So I, I feel like I, I feel like wait, I picked. Wait, I, wait, 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 w
And they made you bacon wrapped asparagus. Well, it was in Canada, right? So they're they're they have to appeal to the people. Like there were people who were there who were eating like chicken wings and stuff. So um, you what? know, hang on. <laughs> you got to play to your you got to play to your audience sometimes. Were these like Korean chicken wings or? Look, man, I didn't order them, so I went for they, the sushi. Like a chicken wing. I, yeah. I guess it was like a, it was like all you can eat thing. You just showed up and started checking things off the menu, and I saw people there eating chicken wings. So, don't know what to tell you. Are you sure you didn't go to like a BW three or something? I'm pretty sure. Pretty sure. A wing stop? No, they don't have any of those here. They have buffalo. They do have. Uh, it wasn't even. It wasn't even sushi. It was like a. A hot dog. It was like a corn dog. It was rolled up. <laughs> I've never had a corn. I've never had a corn dog. So no. Uh, I never have either. Although there were some in the freezer last weekend, and I saw my son eating them, but I've never eaten them. Did he, did he eat them frozen, or did he thaw them out first? He did cook them. Oh, yeah, okay. he did. Uh, I mean, heated them up. It wasn't really. It's pre cooked, obviously. But that's a hot dog. You don't want to, you know, know what it's like before they cook it. So the thing I did learn about Gen Con, and I talked about it briefly on Twitter, was that uh, the rise of uh, the increase of self-centered people, because you had like, you have all those scooters, the, the scourge of the scooter in Indianapolis. So those, those hepatitis, oh, yeah. a, hepatitis A covered scooters everywhere in Indianapolis. Yeah. Um, just, you have to walk around them. You have people zipping in and out of traffic um, with them, expecting everyone's going to give them the right of way. You had lots of inside the convention center in the dealer hall in the busiest sections, you had groups of six or seven people who thought nothing of like standing in the middle of the busiest intersections in a circle, just chit chatting with each other. I had people um, physically push me. I had someone actually moving at rapid speed bounce off me as they were trying to get by me uh, uh, to get to some dealer's booth to, I don't know, like pick up something that was free or like, you know, 50 cents off. So they're going for the value. It just struck me as just like, Jesus Christ has, does nobody learn to like coexist in space with people? I had to learn just because of my sheer size to be aware of like my surroundings and who's near me. So I don't like knock people over and, and bang into things and stuff like that. But I was just astounded at like how many people act like there is like in a sea of, 30,000 people in the dealer room acting like there is literally nobody else standing next to them. It was, it's just, it was, it was very weird. People are monsters and, uh, some monsters know what they are like you, Chris. Right. Some are very unaware of sort of the space they occupy and the impact they have on other people. And, uh, I mean, what would happen in uh, olden times, is those people would be culled from the herd uh, with prejudice. But nowadays, they have rights <laughs> under the Magna Carta and other documents, um, Hobbes and Locke. So, yeah, uh, those friggin' scooters. They tried to dump a, well, they did. They dumped a bunch of them off around here at Purdue, and not surprisingly, people treated them like uh, trash, and they're just animals and just left them lying around everywhere. And, uh, you know, they leave them on sidewalks, like, and, you know, people, if like they were on wheelchairs or something, now they got to go around some kind of friggin'. Uh, scooter that got left there and was probably urinated on by a drunken 19 year old. And 
but they seem to mostly have gone away. I think either they pulled out or burned them all or something. So, but what those companies like Bird do is they don't come in and they don't, they're not like, oh, hello, college campus. Let's discuss what would be the most appropriate and efficient way for us to uh, do this in a non-disruptive way to introduce these on campus. What they do is they send a couple of people in who just I'm like, I'm just going to scatter like 200 scooters around and just leave them. And then they, they just bail. And that's just how it works. And so that's uh that's America for you, I guess. It's an interesting um, business model. Um, I just uh, so many times I look at stuff and think, so what's your plan to make money um, from this? Like literally, like it, it just it, the scooter thing reminds me of like you know the old joke about the startups where you're 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 trying to like get your thing out there and get bought by somebody bigger before they figure out that this thing you're trying to do has no value and nobody's willing to give you anything for it. So I right, look at the, right. so I look at the scooter thing and just think, uh, what's the plan to make profit? Are they charging? And uh, it would seem to me, um, since everybody's using them, yeah. they, they can't be charging a lot for the usage. Well, so you know, depends um, on what you think is a lot, I guess, but well, I mean, but I just look at it. I would think something like that, given how, like how weird people are, uh, about paying for things. Like some things are like, they're like, they value what they do super high. And then they value what other people do really, really low. Like you see this, you see this, like, for example, in magic, in, mm. fi- in, in uh, the finance side of things with people buying and selling cards, people want you to pay them premium top dollar for their cards. They want to say, oh, this card's in perfect condition when you can see like someone took a Sharpie and, and drew a dick on the back of the card. But they, when they want to buy cards from you, they're like, this is garbage. I only want to pay a third of what it's worth. So I just look at it. If you look at it from outside, there's so many of the scooters around. And all I can think of is the cost to use them must be low enough that most people are are just simply comfortable using the app and zipping around on them. So also yeah. I, I, mu- I must admit I did break down with my uh, longstanding objection um, to participating in the um, uh, hustle slash uh, sharing culture and use Lyft to get back and forth um, to, uh-huh. to Gen Con on the busiest day because Gen Con veterans advised me that the likelihood of me finding parking for less than 40 or $50 uh, near the convention center no. was really, really low. Somebody was like, oh, you should park at the zoo. Uh, yeah, and then what? And then take a bus. I'm like, fuck, I'm not taking any goddamn bus to get here. You're so an animal. Uh, yeah, I mean, no, it's just, it, it has nothing to do with being an animal because I am a monster, but, but monsters want to be comfortable. So um, we li- did lift and uh, on the busiest day, and that worked out right. really well. So, uh, so Gen Con. I mean, uh, I would highly recommend people go at least once if you're into board gaming at all. You should go at least once because I did notice that even converting things into snow pesos, the prices of things were really good. Companies were deeply discounting product that they had there. It's a great chance to like try out new games, um, play old favorites. So, but, but uh, just to finish up, I, I, I figured out a very interesting thing about myself, Ed, in terms of gaming, I found what I found what I'm willing to do is I'm willing to play. I'm willing to play games that I don't know with people that I know. And I'm willing to play 
with people that I don't know if it's a game I know really well. Thus, I never hesitate to play magic um, with strangers. But I found right. uh, I seem to have an anxiety trigger for game I have not played with people that I don't know. So that's like it exceeds your threshold of like discomfort, of yes. like uncomfortable, yes. not knowing. Yes. How, yeah. Okay. Right. Yes. Um, so I, that was kind of interesting. Like I'm hoping I'm not going to go back next year, but I'm hoping to go in 2021, uh, which sounds such a future futuristic date when I uh, when I uh, talk about it. I would like to go back, and I think if I go back, I will actually make an effort to sign up to participate in some games that I'm aware of, and hope that that kind of lets me work out, try to work on my issues. Because I found it kind of surprising that I was hesitating to participate um, in stuff where. Uh, where I don't know the people and I don't know the game. Because I guess, like, I've played Magic for a long time, so that's very comfortable to play. And with my local uh, board gaming group that I play with uh, once a month when it's not the summer, we try new things out all the time. So those are very right. com- those are those are very comfortable and, and familiar situations for me. So next time I go back, I, I hope I will... Uh, I'm going to try to push myself a little bit and sign up for a few um, events where it's a combination of, like... Stuff I've played, uh, but with people I don't know, and then agree to sign up for a few demos just to try some games out. And I saw some really like interesting, very cool games. My friend Ian um, pointed out this one booth with these games, and he said to me, how much do you think this, this game was financed via Kickstarter? And he's like, how much do you think they right. were charging people for like to get everything? Mm-hmm. And I've contributed to a lot of Kickstarters. I'm like, like 200 bucks? He goes, you're off by a multiple of seven. So this one game was $1,400 US if you wanted to get everything that they were going to produce. And he said, you would be shocked at the number of people who like just plunk down the credit card. It was this miniatures game called uh, Dwarven Forge, I think it was called. The miniatures were beautiful. Everything looked like it was made out of iron and stone and the figurines were beautiful and whoever had painted them for the show had done such a great job. But I'm like, still, I'm like, that's like 1400 bucks. Um, and, right. and, uh, I don't think, uh, I don't think I'm willing to pay $1,400 for a board game at this point. I've spent more than $1,400 on magic cards, but I'm not willing to pay $1,400 for a board game. Right, right, right. Yeah. I can understand that it does seem kind of like a lot, you know, I actually have, a, a, a a guy who's a friend of mine and he and his brother who are, who are actually twins. They went to the high school here in Lafayette, Jefferson high school. And then they went to Purdue and they uh, they live in Noblesville now, I guess. And uh, but they're board game designers now. That's cool. like what they do. Yeah. So I think they have. I, I'm not sure how much. Like if they're if their des- board game designing is is all they do now. I know they've been writers for things and stuff like that. But I think they're they did a they did a board game based on the walking dead oh nice um they did a cop game called brook city that was based that's kind of like uh like sort of like the lethal weapon movies kinda. all right done as a uh, done as a board game that's kind of cool right uh so yeah they've done a lot of cool stuff like that so it's pretty neat um good good guys too so if you look up adam and brady sadler uh, they're a couple, couple good folks. So, uh, nice. yeah. Yeah. It just seems with the rise of like the ability to crowdsource stuff, it means a lot of people can take chances on games and if, yeah. they can get their, and if they can get their funding, they can crank something out for a niche audience, you know? Yeah. And I think they still, they kickstart, I think most of their projects, like they get, 
you know, the basic design documents and stuff. I'm no expert on it, but I think they get the basic design done and then they say, okay, well, we need funding to actually execute on this. Right. And so they take it to Kickstarter, I believe. So uh that is uh it's been a i guess a a a a good uh outlet for them and and a good situation so um yeah yeah it's that's it's cool stuff and i know they were down there um showing stuff they're working on and selling things and all that so yeah Sweet. Um, yeah, like I, I encourage people like, you know, if you can if you get a chance to go to Gen Con, it's probably worth going just at least once um, to get the experience of it. Um, and just be aware that uh, it's really super crowded um, and super busy. Um, so which leads us to a, another segue, which is for those who follow me know that I had yet again another problem with a vehicle. So uh, so part of this is an interesting discussion. I mean, the sob story about me uh, and my cars is, is well known, but this brings a thing because this illustrates a trait of mine that I have where, where levels, levels of acceptable risk, right? And some of this I feel like is also kind of applicable to software development, right? We all have kind of like uh, my level of acceptable risk um, when there's a problem is different from other people. With with my car, I was convinced that this was a case of just, oh, there's like a loose belt or something. This should be fine. I'll be able to, when I get back to Canada, I'm going to take it to the to the garage and get it looked at. Instead, what happened is that something went really catastrophically wrong and uh, and a hole got blown in the side of my engine. So I need to replace the engine. Um, now, have you confirmed I, that, that that was not a, a gunshot from an American with a gun? No, I'm uh, well, I mean, okay, of course, there's no way of knowing with 100% certainty. Right, um, right. But the noise started, the noise that the car was making started not long after um, entered the entered the US. And now like if I was a well, totally, there you go. R- right. But anyway, um, and if I was a totally risk averse person, um, I would have at that immediate time when the car started making a noise that I was not expecting pull the car over to the side, call AAA. Cause I have, I have the, uh, as I joked with Ed in a message, I have, uh, the equivalent of, uh, AAA, the uh, American automotive association. Is that what it's called? Is that the actual name? Anyway, I have the Canadian AAA version, here, AAA, yeah, right? right? So I have the, yeah. I have the, I, ah, up there. right. Yeah. We, we have the Canadian ah. one in which I say is just like AAA, but they apologize all the time as they're helping you. <laughs> yeah, so, right. so I was able, I mean, the, the, the one, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry about your problem, sir. Sorry. Um, if I, if I was 100% risk averse, I would have just like pulled the car over, said to my buddy, we got to deal with the car, called CA, say, take this, or, and which patches me through to AAA. They do coordinate with each other, so it's not horrible. Um, and would have been mm-hmm. like, uh, yeah, just take my car to the nearest uh, BMW dealership and, uh, and, and we'll see. Uh, let's talk to them and see if they can take a look at the car. And then we can kind of figure out our next steps. But what made me hesitate was the fact that I wasn't alone. If I was alone, I would have done that because there's only me to worry about. I'm like, okay, then if I got to rent a car, rent a car. If I right. got to take a hotel room, gotta, but I had a friend with me. And his schedule is not the same as my schedule. And we had paid a bunch of money for a hotel and he had paid a bunch of money to participate in events. And if this car, and this car thing had stretched on five, six, seven days, then my friend would be forced to take vacation time from his job that maybe he can't take and forced to, forced to just rearrange a bunch of plans. So that's what made me hesitate and just think, I think we can see this through. So of course we didn't. So the worst part of this whole thing was the, the lack of coordination between 
all the parties that could solve this problem, which is, again, we can do a nice parallel to software development. When a problem happens and you need to fix the problem, you always need a clear plan. In this case, my plan was, okay, get the tow truck and tow my car back to a garage where I know they can do the work. But implementing that was a humongous issue. It took three tow trucks, which is just baffling. And I complained to both AAA and CA about this. I'm like, I do not understand why you can't coordinate this properly. So it was like, I waited for two hours for the tow truck, to, first tow truck to show up. And then that one took me and dumped me at a Wendy's parking lot in Port Huron, uh, Michigan, where I could see the border, which is fine. Then we waited uh, two hours for another tow truck to show up. And all that tow truck did was get my car from that Wendy's parking lot across the border where I had to pay a $75 commercial tow to, toll to get my car across the border with the oh. tow truck. And then that dumped me off at the Ontario Travel Center, just on the Canadian side, at Sarnia, Ontario, where I could see the border from where our car was. And then that and then it took three hours for another tow truck to show up and take my car from there to the garage um, where it's sitting right now. So um, hmm. so so I, I know Ed was trying to troll me by putting the BMW stuff on the on the show notes. But I but I think but I think it's it's I I think it's worth an interesting discussion, not because it's BMW, because I'm never going to buy a BMW again. I'm just getting this car fixed, and then I'm going to drive it until the next time um, it dies, and then I'm going to um, sell it for scrap and buy something that's more reliable. Because I ran the numbers. I would be out a ridiculous amount of money if I didn't get the car fixed, if I just like sold it um, as is with a mechanical issue. We're talking the different... like This car... I bought for X amount of dollars, right? And I already poured a bunch of money into it. I got some repairs done already. And then we're looking at potentially another $10,000 for an engine replacement. That's even a used one, right? So like if I just cut my losses and sell, I could sell for 16 to 18,000 Canadian. I'm still out a ridiculous amount of money. If I, if I just say, screw it, don't fix it, sell it, then I still got to buy another car and that's more money. So like when, you know, after we calmed down and my wife and I went over the numbers, it's like the thing that makes sense is the most irritating one to pay a bunch of money out of pocket and get the car fixed. So what, so it's still at the garage. It went there on Tuesday, but what we're waiting on is to hear, I have a third party warranty and that warranty is supposed to help with this stuff. The garage has dealt with that company before. So I'm Mm -hmm. waiting. So I'm waiting to find out how much the warranty is going to help. It sounds like they're going to, you know, sounds like some of it's going to be covered. So we're going to find out what goes on but but right. this is but i think Ed, this is a very interesting thing about like uh for people to where you uh sort of accidentally discovered like what's your comfort level with risk and what's your comfort right. level with solutions and can you um logically is not the word because that implies that there's no emotion involved and there's always emotion involved in any decision you're making about mm-hmm. stuff it's a lie to think that we can shut off our emotions but it's like you have to, you, you, I always found it very helpful that when like something goes wrong, you think about what you want the outcome. Like what's the ultimate resolution of this supposed to be? So for me, the ultimate resolution was um, I have a car because sadly I live out in the middle of nowhere and short term we could get by with just one car. My wife and yeah. I could, my wife and I could plan everything, but there will come a time when I would need another car. There is no car rental places um, out here. Uh, there's certainly no Lyft and Uber. Um, so that would require uh, schlepping somewhere into London and renting a car. And like, mm-hmm. uh, that didn't seem appealing to me. So um, so the outcome was that I have a vehicle. And there was several paths. 
um, that we could get there. One friend suggested I get the car towed to my house and let it sit in the garage. And then like, I, I've started working on um, another book and he's like, well, just keep the car in the garage until the book is done. And then with, with my amazing marketing skills, I should, could probably make enough money um, to, to, to pay off um, all the repairs on the car. Right. So, um, so, so I think it's important for people to listen to think about like, when we even talk about technology stuff, we have a whole bunch of, if we look at this BMW thing, we have a whole bunch of things in play. We have a whole bunch of sunk costs because you've poured a bunch of money and resources into something that is now broken that you have to fix. You have to decide what's your comfort level with risk. How, how, how willing were you to roll with this thing until the point that it looked like it was going to break? How much do you have in resources to fix something? And, but more importantly, like, what do you want the outcome the, if you look at it with the minimal amount of emotion, you have to figure out what you want the outcome. In this case, it's like just throwing away the solution and doing something new, don't have the resources. Throwing away the solution and repurposing someone else's solution, i.e. buying another used car, again, don't have the resources for that. Can right. I? Do I have the resources to get it fixed? Yes. Do it, so do I want to get it fixed now or do I want to wait and get it fixed? I determine want to get it fixed now before I don't want to wait till like winter to try to get the car back on the road again. So, yeah, um, right. So, uh, of course, as you can probably tell, some people aren't good at risk assessment. I, I made a risky choice and I definitely paid for it. Um, but I, I think people need to understand in technology, a lot of things that we think aren't risky actually are. I mean, I've seen you tweet as you've dug into doing more JavaScript stuff that the mm-hmm. idea, the the willingness of people in the JavaScript community to constantly iterate over brand new things instead of like polishing existing solutions. Because it seems like a lot of these solutions are like good for like 80% of what people are doing. And you're right. left and you're left to figure out the 20% when maybe what really needs to happen was some people needed to say, yeah, I've got it at 80 and now I'm going to polish it. So it gets to a 90 or 95% um, percent solution. Because I have found for most for most mature programming languages, uh, I mean, the vast majority of my experience is with PHP, but I see it with Python, having worked with Python now for almost four years, that, yeah, the, this, this focus on we have a mature, stable language and we need our tools to be stable um, as well because uh, the people who are picking things like Python and PHP are, are not the ones who want to be out on the bleeding edge when they're trying to figure things out. They're looking for... Um, well-established, solid solutions that allow them to quickly do something. So I just, as I ruminated, I ruminated about all this stuff when I was like sitting in my car waiting for the Brazilian tow trucks to go. And it was like very interesting, like of of watching uh, kind of how different my approach to programming is from how I approached my car. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, most definitely. I, I think that it's a, it's a problem and it's a, uh you know, with car stuff, I, you know, I, I tend to buy, I tend to buy the same car over and over, but, uh, right. and you also, and you, yeah. And you also tend to get new ones. I mean, I was comparing the stuff with my right. wife, with my wife. It's like every new car that we've bought since we've been married, we only had one lemon and we got rid of that really, really quick. But every brand new car we've either leased or purchased, yeah. uh, she has driven and they have been super reliable. Every right. used car that we've purchased for myself, all the right. way from the first uh, Ford Taurus that I bought up to this is now BMW number two that I have, have had problems. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah. It's interesting as you kind of look at 
if you start evaluating car stuff from a set of constraints, if you're looking for something reliable and you don't want to have headaches associated with owning it, clearly buying new is or leasing something new is the way to go. Because generally speaking, the lease does not run any longer than the period in which uh, the warranty, especially these days, warranties on vehicles are quite good. They're way yeah. better than they're way better than they used to be. Even ten years ago, they're so much better now. So it's kind of like I think that when the decision comes to get rid of uh, test more version two, I will seriously consider leasing something new. Because just simply because it's like the next time this thing breaks down and has a problem, I want my out of pocket expenses to be minimal instead of me like saying, uh, like looking and saying like 10 grand uh, is a lot of money um, for me to have to spend. I can do it, but I'm not happy that I have to spend that type of money. Well, no, it's a, it's a huge amount of money. I yeah. mean, yeah. It, uh, and so to just drop that—that's that's pretty rough for most people. Yeah, I mean, on the one, uh, on the yeah. one hand, it's nice that I have the resources to do it, but on the other hand, it's a lot of goddamn money. It's, it's a huge amount of money. It's a lot of money. It's, yeah. There's no doubt about it. You know, I, uh, you know, and, and to tie it more back into dev stuff, it's just yeah, I I know that I have been thinking a lot about uh, risk and reward and and how much it pays to uh, stick with certain kinds of approaches and tools and uh, and so really reliability and sustainability I guess the, the the term I kind of been thinking about is a lot of sustainability and what is what are sustainable processes what are choices that put you in a place to to be uh, sustainable in terms of your development processes in terms of your uh, in terms of your projects and things like that and I think that I yeah I've been really frustrated I think I think there's there's a certainly different you know, plenty of different groups that do this. Uh, but I think that the JavaScript community is probably the one that I am most aware of in terms of being a worst offender, uh, in terms of being both very popular and wildly, I would say unsustainable in its approaches. And it continues to make choices about, uh, that are focused on really edge case kinds of scenarios and um, things that it's it, it's more focused on making certain things possible and less focused on things that have a clear and measurable benefit to lasting sustainable project development. And I think a lot of that you see in things like how fast stuff iterates, uh, how is backwards compatibility maintained, um, how quickly do things go from being uh, thought of as, as uh, you know, current to being out of date, how fast do, say, language features iterate. I am. I know that they talked about certain, you know, sort of adding new features into JavaScript uh, that end up in ES6 or what have you quickly. Uh, and I know they talked about that for years. But the thing is, um, and I guess the thing that kind of bugs me about it is that I'm not sure that, uh, you know, some of those features I do think are helpful. But I think a majority of those features are things that, 
most people would have continued to use the language fine without ever having a problem with it. And there are great advantages to having fewer choices and fewer options um, to being able to do things a couple of different ways. And that's kind of it. And JavaScript as a language itself became significantly more complex and the community around it turned into sort of a a really big mass of different approaches and and iterating over a, a, a tooling and uh, features and things like that, exposing things instead of trying to stabilize and create things that were sustainable again. Uh, think about developing a project that might have to be here for three, four, or five years. That, when you've done this for a while, you realize that that's not, that's not uncommon at all. That's, that's very common. And the, the, the case to be made that it's worth, say, rewriting an application in a new version of X or in a new framework or what have you, uh, that usually that's a pretty hard case to make. Um, when somebody is act, when you know the people who actually have to pay for it are involved in those choices, and so you know, I feel like the the kind of work that I do, I don't think I'm doing right by my clients, my customers. I don't think I'm doing the right kinds of things if I say I'm going to pick a what I guess I would call a cutting edge kind of approach or like a. Because I, I, I really have to look at the history of a project and see how those kinds of things have gone. And I, I, still think, I still think so many people, but particularly in JavaScript stuff and front-end development, they're focused on what's possible instead of making things simpler and easier and, and fewer choices involved and reducing complexity and making things more accessible. When you do those kinds of things, things become a lot more sustainable. But uh, if you're constantly sort of focused on, well, can we, you know, what are in sort of tweakability and, and the choices you can make and stuff like that? I think that that's, that's a real problem. Uh, I, I don't understand where it got to a point, for example, that sort of the state of, of like, your of the assumption of a tool chain that involved like Webpack and other things in it, where that sort of became okay. When I went around and asked folks like who are who like not only were just uh, not just like sort of like average developers, but people who are sort of thought of as experts in these kinds of things, uh, talking about the tool chains that they set up, and almost all of them said, "Well, basically, I just duked around with it and figured out eventually I got it working, and then I didn't touch it anymore." Like that's that's not. St- that's not safe, right? I mean, that's that's not good. And that that talk that tells you that okay, you've released this very very complex tool that certainly is very powerful, but is it actually a good tool? Is it does it lead to sustainability? Does it lead it to be something that you can really count on and rely on? Or is it something that you're constantly afraid that if you insert the wrong character somewhere, you're going to screw it up and it, you, you can't figure it out and you waste, you know, half the day trying to debug your tool chain? That stuff is, you know, that's a, 
I feel like a big waste of time. <laughs> oh, I, I feel I, like, I, yeah, that's just a gigantic waste of everybody's time. I've, I've and, always encouraged people, like, when you find yourself fighting with a tool, it's probably time to stop using that tool because, like, yeah. I, there's... I guess people, I guess there's like a mindset where people like pride themselves on like plowing through all these problems and figuring stuff out. I'd be like the first, the, the second or third time that I had some problem with like a build tool and the error messages are uh, useless and I have no idea what's going on. I'd be like, I don't want to use that anymore. And I will retreat back to earlier things um, that I'm comfortable with. Even, even if that means I'm, Losing the benefit of stuff. I talked about this on Twitter the other day. I felt like, like, what's a newer programming concept that absolutely stumps me? It was like all this asset compilation the, and smushing together of CSS and JavaScript to save memory and stuff. I'm like, that stuff seems like I look at it and my question is always like, why? Why are we at this point? Why did we let it? Um, get to this point where where uh, are 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 we building a whole segment of of the, the programming world where people are trying to make sure they have a job by doing things that are like super complicated and nobody right. else understands? Um, it, it's interesting. We we're talking about this, the sustainable stuff. That something came out either yesterday or the day before. I saw on Twitter where, uh, and I, I apologize if I mispronounce his name, Zeev Suraski, who's like one of the core developers for PHP sent a very mm-hmm. long email to the uh, PHP internals, which is normally a, a cesspool uh, yeah. that, that if there was ever one mailing list that needed a code of conduct to try to straighten things out and get it going in the right directions, um, it is the PHP internals mailing list. But talked about that they are seriously considering, um, they don't know what to call it, but for lack of a better word, uh, PHP plus plus. So the idea that they want to have a stable core that is like the reference implementation for PHP, which is what they kind of have with the C version, and then start adding additional features on top of it um, that people can use if they want to, but with a better focus on the idea is sort of like make sure the reference, whatever the reference implementation is, is as backwards compatible um, as possible, but extend the language so that a lot of the things that are being shown as um, RFCs for PHP, new features that people want to see. They can implement those, um, but have it so that if people want to just use the reference implementation, the reference implementation gets updates and stability and bug fixes and improvements with the idea of that. that I think they've come to realize that backwards compatibility um, is a huge issue. And so they need to be pouring a lot more work into making sure newer versions of PHP that uh, people's uh, code doesn't suddenly break, uh, be much more sensitive to backwards compatibility. I think that's some pressure from perhaps WordPress and some of the other larger sort of PHP adjacent projects, huge projects that use PHP are mm-hmm. basically saying y'all need to stop breaking um, PHP all the time. Uh, but the idea of kind of like, if you look at like how, what, how C++ came out of C, where like everything, <laughs> everything that is in C works in C++, and then you get all these other things on top of it. So I, uh, so I think it's a very interesting um, idea that I think ties into your idea of sustainability. We're providing people with tools to do new things, but you'll be able to take all the old things that worked and get them still working 
with, for lack of a better word, in PHP++. I could take some code that I wrote 10 years ago and PHP++ will know what to do with it. It won't be confused. It won't complain about you're using named constructors instead of uh, the, you know, the proper underscore underscore construct mechanism and, and that pass by, uh, you know, pass by reference and pass by value continue to work the way that you expect. But for people who want to take advantage of newer features, they're built into, they're in this new version uh, and you can use those instead of using the old ones i just i I thought it was kind of interesting yeah yeah i'm trying to find that link and maybe you can look for it but i did yeah we'll we'll find it i did read i kind of skimmed over what what zeev was talking about and it was kind of like the idea he also likened it to like es5 and es6 the same sort of thing it's like this will both allow us to have a stable version of PHP that we can continue to iterate on and make run really well, but at the same time provide us for a way to add um, uh, add new features that people want, but allow right. allow existing applications to still function correctly. Some people kind of likened it if we look back at the time when uh, Facebook was pushing hack, right? Or and and HHVM, the idea that your existing code will work okay, and here's a whole bunch of new things that you can use um, if you want to, and if you flip the right switches um, in your PHP configuration. That out of the box, you this is the reference implementation, and your older code should work just fine. But there's these cool new features. Uh, When we're doing up the show notes, I will dig in and find that post on internals and 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 link it to the show. I just find it interesting because the idea of thinking of like a PHP plus plus is kind of an interesting one that finally finally settling on we have a reference imp, uh, implementation and then we want to make sure the stuff that's written against the reference implementation always works in the newer versions uh this extended php plus plus or um whatever they decide to call it yeah i i think it's a good idea i i never really felt i felt like the uh focus on backwards compatibility that php has had in general has been a really good thing and oh. Uh, but I think that, you know, I, I in the post, I think and it's important to read it. So we'll put it in the notes. Uh, there's a lot of there's sort of two. Well, you might divide it into two camps, one that are really want to pull the language forward and um, and really, you know, look at introducing new features and 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 things that come from other languages that are appealing. And I, I can certainly see that. Um, and I find much of that stuff appealing in other languages, uh, like Python and, J- and even JavaScript, even JavaScript. But um, I do also think that there's a lot of folks who have said, I've been working with PHP for a long time, and I think it works well, and I don't see any reason to. And all it's really going to do, if you do all X, Y, and Z, is that it's going to make my life harder, <laughs> right? <laughs> because eventually the versions that my code are, that do support my code, those are going to go away, and those aren't going to be supported even with security releases and fixes anymore. And so... It's going to introduce more problems for me if you uh, go in this direction. And this split might be an interesting idea, you know. So, I, hey, I think that's great. I think uh, 
I, I think that's a probably a good thing. And there's certainly a branding thing that goes along with it that a lot of people don't want to, and they talk about this. A lot of people don't want to use stuff because just because it's PHP, not because it's a good choice or a bad choice or whatever. It's just they think, oh, well, that's the language that WordPress is written in and it's garbage, right? So it's nobody should use it. And I mean, that's just not accurate. It's, 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 it's very much not accurate. Yes, there are some there's some weirdness with the language. I've worked with weirder languages. It's fine. Or I mean more problemat- problematic languages and it's not that big a deal really. Um and there's a lot of really good things you can do with PHP too that it has advantages and it has some annoyances and that every single language I've ever used is like that. So, I don't know. Hey, the language I like using most is Python. I I I felt that way for years now, uh, but I write in a bunch of different languages still. So that's just that's just the way it is. You know, you use the right tools uh, for the situation you're in. So to wrap up the little PHP and sustainable dev thing, uh, I think it's good that they're actually talking about wanting to take a risk and taking a chance and trying yes. to do something different um, with the goal of we think this is a solution that will make the uh, largest number of people happy as opposed to a very as opposed as opposed to what could be a very small but very vocal um, minority of people involved in the development of the PHP language. So on the show notes we also have a note here because um, we've got about eight or nine minutes left in tonight's episode that you've been right. doing some work on C sharp so and you said yeah. that you're really digging it. So how about you spend a couple minutes here talking about like working with C-sharp and what it is that you really like about it? Uh, I got to think about that for a minute. Well, so uh, C-sharp clearly has a lot of backing from Microsoft, right? So, uh, so the, does. so the it tooling does, around yeah. it is probably really good, right? Mm. No, it's better than Java. Uh, but the tooling is, it suffers like I, I think the same way that Java has suffered in that the tooling and the community and such have been focused on for a long time were focused on there was sort of one source of information and truth, and that was Microsoft and everybody else the and everybody who did work in that language pretty much just did whatever Microsoft told them to do. The vast majority of training and articles and documentation and libraries and everything, you wanted it all to come from Microsoft. And, um, and that is, that's a, a stark difference that you would see. It was definitely more the case, like, let's say 10 years ago. And it was a stark difference where you would, if you messed with Java or you mess with C sharp or a language like that, and then you compared it to like working with with Python and the tooling there's there or PHP um, where, and or JavaScript where there were lots of different people doing things and lots of people writing about it. And it was sort of, the difference is, is somebody going to come and is there a company that's going to bless us with knowledge and information about this and they are going to tell us how to do this or are we going to figure it out ourselves and the community is responsible for doing it? And that perspective motivates, uh, it's, you sort of have a more, uh, you have 
a sort of a monoculture in terms of approaches and, and things like that versus a, uh, a, a much more diverse sort of group of people all doing kind of different things. And, you know, I came very much, you know, I, I learned to program really with PHP. I'd done other stuff too, but that's where it actually started to click. Um, and so that's what I got used to. And it's, it's, it's a lot easier to cheat. I think if you're motivated to learn how to use something like PHP, PHP also had really good documentation that the community developed uh, that was all in one place, which taught me a lot about how extremely important documentation is to your tool choices. Um, So the Microsoft stuff is good in a lot of ways. I like it better than Java, but it's very much a Java-esque language. Like everything is a class. You put everything in a namespace. You know, everything everything has a single entry point, like a program main entry point. Um, so it's very, very similar to Java in sort of philosophically, right? Um, and so it's you make classes for everything. There's very little like like everything is very static is statically typed and 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 uh, it's all you end up you feel sometimes like can I just like write a friggin' Uh, like a PHP array or a Python dictionary and just put a freaking value in a structure and just do that. And you just really wish you could do that. And you kind of can't, you, you sort of can. They have these things called anonymous types, which sort of let you do that, but not really. It's pretty limited. Um, but there's advantages to it. The, the really strong typing also leads to fewer errors and things like that. And that's nice. I think that's generally good. Um, I think it is, I think C sharp is very reasonable. I think it where it suffers is that the, it doesn't have that diversity of lots of different people doing lots of different things. Like, okay. So like in PHP, there's a billion different friggin' web frameworks, right? And they have different approaches. You could take, you've got an approach, you got micro frameworks like Slim. I I assume that's still around. I haven't used it for a while, but uh, I, you know, there's Slim, there's something that's really kind of like highly sort of engineered, like a symphony there that has lots of you know structure to it. Uh, there's stuff like Laravel. There's a bunch of different options for doing different things. Right. Um, and in Python, you have like, I mean, there's a lot of different, there's a lot of different web frameworks, but you have two really, really big ones and they're philosophically extremely different in Django and Flask. But they both have extremely good documentation, lots of people writing training materials and teaching each other about it and stuff like that, and lots of lots of different things. And, you know, in Python, I did almost all Flask stuff. I really like Flask. I like it, how simple it is to get started and then build iteratively off of it. Um, it's not like there aren't other uh, web frameworks for C Sharp, but... Really, if you look it up, everybody is using ASP.NET. Everybody's using that. Okay. So, um, and when I say everybody, I mean statistically, almost everybody is using that. Like, I would assume that if you did, I would guess that if you did some sort of analysis of stuff written about C sharp, like on, I don't know, Stack Overflow or something like that, 95% of it, if it's about web stuff, it is about ASP.NET or.NET Core. Um, 
And it gets weird and kind of complex because they're, Microsoft is terrible about naming things, about how they name things, because they name things like like there's a tool that I use to connect to my to databases from the Mac called Azure Data Studio, and it's a desktop program, and they named it the same thing that they named their cloud services. Like why, why it doesn't have anything to do with Azure. It's just connecting to databases. That's all. That's all. That's what it does. It doesn't do anything else. Right. It's fine. But, but, okay. So yes, there's some, there's these problems with it that I don't think it's as good. I, I like the community and all that stuff. And I like the language better in Python and, and I even probably like PHP better and things like that. Okay. That being said, there are some really good tools and Microsoft has in the past 10 years really changed their tune about open source and getting community involved in stuff and opening up the license on everything. And they really are working it they take they read uh bug reports they take pull requests they do all this sorts of stuff um they really do pay attention to that stuff um visual studio code is uh the editor that i use for things on mac os and it is really really good for a free tool it is insanely good it is really really powerful and uh microsoft has put a bunch of ide level features that you would need to pay you know a few hundred dollars for and they just give it away for free and it's really it's a really good tool yeah i've used uh, i've used visual studio code the free one so i do know at uh for most of my python work i'm using pycharm um, yeah, me from, too. From I use Pine Charm yeah. for it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, if but, you, but I have yeah. used VS Code, and and uh, as a longtime Vim user, I find the Vim bindings for um, Visual Studio to be adequate. Yes, uh, I just found today that there's a, a cool thing called it's like a Visual VS Code Remote something. Basically, what it lets you do is it's like not just editing over SSH, but it seems like it actually sets up like some sort of server that runs on a, 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 a few different Linux variants that you SSH into, but you can, it'll also like execute all their debugging tools and things like that there. So you can do re- complete remote debugging and it's way easier to set it up than anything else. Um, it's just really impressive how they're doing that. And yeah, that feature that they're pushing, that's like an official, it's an official add on. It only works on Linux servers. It doesn't work in windows. So it is, they, uh, I mean, so you, you can obviously run your client on Windows, but they have really, I think Microsoft just in general has done a really good job of embracing Linux. The .NET Core stuff runs really well on Linux. And when we write in .NET Core, we can deploy on Windows, we can deploy on Linux, we can deploy on other things. We can run it in Mac OS and develop on that. Um, and it's nice. And it, it, are there pluses and minuses to it? Yes, absolutely. There are pluses and minuses to it, just like every other language. But... Microsoft actually puts effort into documenting, like, how do I run this on Linux? They put 
clear instructions on how to get an application compiled and running uh, on on Linux. How do you do deployment and things like that? And they've they've really changed their tune. And so I think C sharp and and the ASP.NET Core stuff or whatever you want to do with it is it, it's it's very much an enterprise web framework, and it's got all the problems with that where it's trying to be everything to everybody. So it's really kind of co- overly engineered and it's too complex. And at work, we use like 15% of it, right? Because we don't want to use a whole bunch of stuff that it like encourages you to. We just want to write like, okay, uh, we just want the routing and like some very basic other stuff that it goes with it. And we don't need all the other stuff, but um, it, I, it's good. They do. They're doing good stuff, and it's a very viable platform to do it. Not just on Windows. You, I, we run lots of stuff on Linux servers with .NET that's compiled C sharp to .NET Core, and it works really well. So uh, we've been really happy with it. I mean, it's good stuff, and I'm glad. I wanted to learn more about C sharp stuff, and I'm I, I, I'm getting it. It's you know I'm not great at it, but I'm a lot better than I was like three months ago. And yeah, it's good. It's not not crazy it's just takes a little while to get through it some of the stuff is hard but most of the things that are hard are things where they have tons of abstractions and they don't document it well and that you that that would be the same way in every single language you run into it's always like that the documents suck it's over engineered it's too abstract it yeah you run into that and most of the time it's really not like that so yeah yeah, I'll give you a finger. You tell me to speed up. Wow, I'm just but, telling you to wrap it up, not speed it up. Wrap My it up, bud. God, you're the one who is like, we have to be done by a certain time. So I'm how about fuck you back? I, I think that's yeah, I think, right. I think that's fair. Yes. That, you, that it was fake news that you said we needed to be done by a certain time, so we can ramble for a little bit longer. Yeah, that's interesting. I think you highlighted a really good point. I think that languages that have really good documentation. Are, yep. uh, attract the most people um, to them, uh, and that's where some of the, uh, just this, uh, you know, the I don't know what to, I don't know what to label, it, but the idea, uh, I guess, masochism as program the idea that uh, you, that there's a whole bunch of like secret stuff that you need to know in order to use a tool well. So people are like, well, I had to walk both ways uphill in the snow to learn how to do this thing, and you should suffer along with me. And then looking, yeah. and then looking down at programming languages and tools that have put a ton of work to allow less experienced folks to pick them up and start doing something. I mean, uh, a lot of this stuff with a lot of the anger and other things directed at PHP is just simply because a lot of people uh, dislike that PHP allows beginners to get going and build, and build stuff and not have to care about structure and not have to care about, uh, all the things that you eventually learn to care about if you're planning on to loop back to what we talked about earlier, an application that needs to live for three to five years. The, the skill set that you need to build something like that is way, way different uh, than I think then I, I would even hazard, I guess, that, that the most programmers, most people who at this moment are getting paid to write programs do not have the necessary accompanying skills to build something that will last three to five years. Uh, it, the way that mm-hmm. tech, the way the tech market is now, the focus on startups, the focus on go fast and break things. People are jumping from job to job before the thing that they've built 
um, gets to end of life. So I, I think the the skill set that you need to build something that will be stable and get worked on and iterated on over a, over uh, you know a three to five uh, year um, window. Uh, most people just don't have that skill set. So it's always, for me, always really good when I find people, when I work with people like that who have an eye towards maintainability and, and understand that, um, you know, you can't just mothball everything that you don't like. You can't just throw stuff away. You know, there's things that are making money um, for companies and those things need to be supported. And I, I think oftentimes people just need to, rather than looking at legacy being in maintenance mode as being a nightmare, you can look at it as an opportunity to really stretch your skills in different ways and find opportunities to do things like, you know, if we look at old cranky PHP applications, what would you need to do to get this thing working on a newer version of PHP? Can we drop PHP right. 7 in? What's going to break? This could be like an inch, like this is a way that people who are kind of bored and jaded at their jobs, sometimes you have to look at it from a different way. I'm not saying your job has to be great all the time because Lord knows both you and I had at our jobs, even though we like the people that we work with and we like the oh, money yeah. that we're getting paid to do it. Sometimes there are things that we're asked to do that are just like, this is just garbage and I don't want to do this um, at all. And sometimes yeah. you just, I, I have found the way that I have, uh, not gone ballistic and rage quit lately is just starting to like just look at things from a different perspective and look at the challenge and think of the challenge well we have to move this thing forward and this thing's going to be here for a while the window within which I want to get rid of this thing is much um, wider than I am happy with but um, this thing still needs to work so uh, I think I think developing coping skills and understanding that this thing that you're building, you may be the only one supporting it for a super long time. Maybe some people might make some um, better decisions about uh, um, the tools that they're using. I mean, I look at the work that I'm doing now. I'm doing tests for the telemetry stuff that's built into Firefox. And we have a client suite and we're looking at two big things that we have to do at once. Uh, Python 2.7 has gotten to its end of life. So it's going to be getting no more security updates. Right. So there's uh, an ongoing um, ongoing task within uh, Mozilla that I'm not involved in, but people are working on figuring out what needs to change in a bunch of stuff to support Python 3 and that we have a desire for the telemetry test suite anyway to move from using the old Python unit test um, testing framework to using PyTest. The main reason being access to a whole bunch of new plugins that will help us do things and uh, oddly enough, better error messages and better uh, better uh, introspection into assertions when they go bad. With unit tests, you have to define them all. So um, sometimes you get an error message that says the test failed. PyTest will like will for you out of the box tell you if you have an assertion and it fails, it shows you all the parts of that assertion. So you can you get much more information about um, from your logs. So so this right. is the thing I've started looking at. And it's kind of interesting where I realize like yeah we have all the stuff with unit tests. What can I touch? What can I touch? What can I what can I modify? What can I break? Am I going to have to make the case for splitting off the running of these unit tests inside this gigantic cluster that we have? Can I get this so that I can isolate those tests and get it working with Python and at the same time not break um, anything else? I mean, uh, maintenance programming is a completely different skill set. And uh, I, I honestly feel like you really haven't stretched yourself out as a programmer until you've come into that situation where you have an app that needs to stick around. But at the same time, you need to upgrade components of it to the latest yep. versions of things and figuring out a plan and executing on that plan. Um, uh, 
I, I think will will reveal uh, what your skills really are. I think. Yep. Yep. It's and most of the time you do it. You just got to plow through it, and it's hard. You know, it takes time. It does. It does. That's my. I mean, I, this is probably working on this telemetry client stuff. This is probably going to occupy me, provided I stay at Mozilla, because you never know. I could always just quit. Um, Ed knows me well enough to know that these quitting things just come out of nowhere anyway. So um, yep. this is likely to occupy the next 12 to 18 months of my time as my primary task at Mozilla, figuring out how do we, how do I isolate and sandbox these things in such a way that not only do I not break anything else, but uh, by getting PyTests in there, it makes the tests themselves easier um, to write. So then we can get more people writing more tests because there's less friction. We can say to people, you can write these tests with PyTests. You don't need to use all these weird custom assertions and mix-ins and other things that we wrote ourselves because unit tests didn't provide them. So it's been interesting right. spelunking through the code base and going, oh my goodness, these are all, I look at things and go, these are, I know how to do all these things with PyTest. The fact that we're doing them this way um, with unit test is just an abomination. So um like I said, eventually um, we'll get to it, and yeah. I, and I look for I look forward to being able to do um, blog posts and get some nice pats on the back for my coworkers for um, solving problems because these are exactly the type of problems that they give me to work on at Mozilla. Weird ones involving legacy code, and like Chris will go in there and figure out what we need to do to detangle a bunch of stuff and push it forward. And um, I have found um, that has really pushed my skill set in ways that have that even in my 21st year doing this stuff allows me to grow and learn a bunch of new shit, which is always good. That is good. Yeah. Always learning. Always learning. ABL, always be learning. Always be learning. I just saw that iTerm2, which is the terminal program I use on Mac OS, yes. was using seven and a half gigabytes of memory. That seems yes. like a lot. Yes, that's that, really, that welcome to modern um, web <laughs> development where people think everyone's laptop has unlimited amounts of memories. Right. Yes. Yeah. Well, Ed, I think have we reached another the end of another scintillating episode? Unless there's anything else you want to talk about? No, I think we have. I think we're in good shape. Awesome. So as always, thank you to everyone who has sat through uh, us rambling about uh, two old men rambling about programming stuff over the years. This is episode episode ninety eight. Oh, I'm stuttering over this thing. Episode oh, yeah. ninety eight of the Development Hell podcast. As always, you can find every single episode we've ever done up at our website, devhell.info, where the recordings are all up there, scintillating graphics provided by Ed, witty show notes uh, compiled by me. You can also find us on Twitter at dev underscore hell. You can also find the podcast on iTunes. If you do listen via iTunes, please rate the podcast. We like to know that people are listening and more importantly, enjoying what is essentially a comedy tech podcast. You can also find me on Twitter as Grumpy Pro without the U. You can find Edis Funkatron with the U. As always, thanks for joining us. And just think, we're only two episodes away from number 100. Have a good night, everybody. Good night.